On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas, hoss, we roll along. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the other side of Texas with my dad. Good little intro there by little Charlie, four years old. We got a good show coming up for you. We'll have a conversation with Dr. Ted Mitchell, president of the Texas Tech Health Sciences Center, which has put out a program that the governor has been touting in a school safety plan, a mental health screening program. Dr. Mitchell will tell us all about that, as well as our fifth installment of Texas Legislature 101 with Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse. And I hope that you'll enjoy that as well. But first we have Charlie. Yeah, are you excited about where we're going, Charlie? Yes. Where are we going to go? At OU. Okay. To the ranch in the mountains, right? Yeah. What, what are we going to see there? Moose. Moose? What else? Dinosaurs. No. Oh, are we really going to see dinosaurs? Yes. You probably want to see dinosaurs. What other kind of fun are we going to have? Um, go at the museum. There no, we're not going to any museum. Um, we're going at the zoo. Yeah, uh, maybe not that. Do you even know where we're going, man? At Olio. Okay. Oh, all right. A man who should have his own radio show. He's Dr. Ted Mitchell, president of Texas Tech Health Sciences Center. How are you, Dr. Ted? Doing quite well. Thanks for having me, Jay. I uh, I tried to dress up like you last Halloween. Oh, that's not good. That uh, three-inch... You'll get arrested for that. Three-inch flat top you got going. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm between 6'2 and 6'4, depending on my last haircut time. That's right. It's, it is a throwback. <laughs> but you pull it off well. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you are pretty... Like, I always say that Four Price is the most decent politician I've ever met. Right. Okay? And you're the most uh, charismatic... <laughs> Borderline genuine. We'll see how this interview goes, uh, but <laughs> but official uh, in Texas. Well, thank you. Did you ever do? Did you ever do like any comedy or any sort of entertainment stuff? No, but I grew up in a big family. Yeah, L- lots of lots of observation of of human behavior. How many How many siblings? Yeah, there were five of us: four boys and a girl, and okay. I was right in the middle. Okay, I had it coming from above and below. And you grew up where? Longview, Texas. Okay. So Longview, behind the pine curtain, it's like uh, it's like West Texas with trees. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it is. Yeah, man, I drove out there a while back and tried to get to Nacogdoches. Sure, and you just figure out real quick either you can drive nine hours or you can fly and be in process of flying for six hours and then drive three hours from about the DFW. same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Golly, I wish we had you for an hour, but we're going to take what we can get for now. What we've got you in here to talk about is, uh, for, well, we're going to get to it, I promise. I'm a little, I'm a little bit jealous of you on the whole, but especially I was Googling a picture today so that we could throw up on our Twitter, and uh, the third search that comes, third search suggestion on 
Google is Ted Mitchell Treehouse. Now, everybody knows I had the best tree. They call it the tree condo. They want me to put it up on Airbnb. I built it. Uh, I wish I had the picture I don't have up right now. We got this red oak, and I built two. It's a three-story treehouse into the red oak built around the branches. And I thought, that's the best treehouse I've ever seen, and it's in my backyard. <laughs> but you were watching Discovery one night and dorked out in and got some guys to come build a treehouse in nine trees. <laughs> well, ours we had some professional help on ours. But I will tell you, uh, it is the best built home that we own. You have a urinal in the thing? No, we got a full bathroom. We don't have a urinal. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> Only people in Lubbock building them in their backyards have a urinal. <laughs> I don't even have a urinal. I don't in have a plumbing room. We have nine urinals right outside. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's get into this. The governor, Governor Abbott, begins to tout a mental health screening program from none other than the Health Sciences Center. And I've got some thoughts that I want to get into later. But did you have any indication that he was going to use this as a signature program as he began to address school school shootings? Well. I'll tell you, we've worked with Governor Abbott's office for a while about the program that we have. And in fact, just before before Governor Abbott, Governor Perry uh, had been the one to help establish this as we started. Uh, right after the Sandy Hook shooting in December of 12, we were contacted by Governor Perry's office at the time saying, listen, the, 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 the heat's about to turn up on everything all over again. Is there not some way we can put together a program that might help to find these kids that are desperately needing some help. And so we sat down with uh, Dr. Billy Phillips, who's the Executive Vice President for Rural and Community Health, and I said, Billy, put together a group, put together a team, and see if we can't come up with something. And so they worked on it for a while, and what they put together, it's called the Telemedicine Wellness in, uh, Initiative, or no, Telemedicine Wellness Initiative Triage and Referral Program, Twitter. And what it is, it's a, it's a team of licensed professional counselors that go into a school district. And we, we focused on grades 8 through 12. And they, they train everybody from the principal down to the janitor about what to look for in kids. Isolation, uh, the way they're dressing, uh, what they're doing in class, things like that. And they spend time training everybody. And then, as the teachers, as the janitors, as anybody sees a child that may be having trouble, they refer them in to us, to these LPCs. And so we have... And LPC stands for... Licensed Professional Counselors. Okay. And so these folks then will actually work with the child, work with the interview the child and spend time with them. And the good news is the vast majority of students that have been referred... They would come from a broken home or they're new to the area. They would have what I would call the usual things that kids go through that create stress. They just needed some help. And so the LPCs can handle the majority of them. On occasion, about half the students, when they would see them, they said, look, you need more than what I can do. They're then referred in through telemedicine to our psychiatry department. And so then one of our psychiatrists will do a few sessions with them via telemedicine. So via Skype. More, it's, a, it's a HIPAA compliant Skype is okay. what it is. All right. And by doing it like that, it's actually interesting because oftentimes people will open up more in situations like that if they're not in the same room with you. 
So the, the psychiatrist will spend a few sessions with them and then determine if it's something they can refer back to the counselor and say, look, just work with them on these things, or if it's something that the patient's going to need ongoing follow-up, in which case they'll continue to follow them. And as a consequence with that, uh, we have now screened about close to 42,000 students in 10 districts around Lubbock. And of those, we've had about 400 referrals that would come into our LPCs, the counselors. And of them, about half of them, half of them were referred back to psychiatry. Okay. Now, the real crux of it would be two things. First is there have been 25 kids that were actually removed from school because they were, they were, they were exhibiting enough signs of, of a tendency toward either self-harm or harm toward somebody else that it was felt they could not stay in that environment. Uh, and that's, that was the primary thing that we were looking for. But there was a halo effect that actually, to me, is, is at least as beneficial. And that is those 400 students that were initially referred, if you look at their truancy rates, uh, they were improved significantly by close to 20%. If you look at their GPAs, their GPAs went up. And if you look at their referrals for discipline relative to where they'd been, their referrals for discipline had gone down by about 25%. So to me, the big impact is finding all these kids that just need some help. So need somebody to talk to. You better believe it. Yeah. Somebody trained in counseling to work with them. And so it's that program that Governor Abbott had continued to support. And we've had, we have plans for rolling. By in. support, you mean? Financially, from the state. So there's money going into that program that the governor is behind. Correct, from okay. the governor's office. So it's not been a line item from the Health Sciences Center per se, although we've put money in as well. But there's funding that also has come in from the governor's office for it. And our plans uh, before Santa Fe uh, we're to roll it out in Amarillo this next year and then maybe look to the Permian Basin, our area in West Texas. Of where Harvard. you have different campuses. Correct. Where okay. we have health science centers. So just to get those stats right, 40,000 students have gone out mm -hmm. and looked over. and drawn. So you're at about 400 for every, 100 for every sure. 10,000 sure. students come up as, yeah. as a flag of some sort. So about 1% of the students. Yeah that get referred in. And the good news with them is that about half of them, they just need a counselor. And keep in mind that some of these school districts don't have counselors. And the counselors they do have are academic counselors. Yeah, rural school yeah. districts. Yeah. And so we're filling that void for them. So for us, it's a wonderful service that we provide. Keep in mind that health sciences centers have three missions, educating healthcare professionals, performing research, and performing service to the communities. So this is part of our service line to the communities that we do this. And uh, so we've been working on this independent of what happened. And then what happened with Santa Fe uh, really just put everything to the forefront. We do not pretend that this is a program that is an end-all, be-all for everything with regards to school violence. We look at this as another additional, very effective tool that school districts can use. A layer. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm involved with LISD addressing this, and, uh, you know... There Did you say LISD? LISD, oh, yeah. Sorry. I thought you said LSD. No, sorry. Uh, sometimes I lay off on that I. Uh, but, you know, there were different... You missed my joke. Different, yeah, I, no, I totally got it, but <laughs> I, I'm not going to sit here and make any concession to you, Ted Mitchell, on LSD. Uh, but several layers to the onion and you know the different committees were safety and then hardening schools and so there are different facets to that but you know of all they they let us break out into different committees and i went to the safety committee 
because it seems to me, and you know, I was, I'm a retired youth minister back in college and afterwards, but the one people can make their arguments about guns mm-hmm. and about the types of guns that were used, and there are constant variables. Sure. But another constant variable is that it was a kid who was mad, uh, got sad, and got bad, just to be right. reductionistic about it. But that, to me, seems to be the biggest variable, because they're going to find weapons, they're going to find ways of destruction. The problem is how they got to that place in their mind and in their heart where they decided this is a real solution to my problem. I think that's that's an extraordinarily salient observation of it because it is that if you look at the state of texas where where we grew up and 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 uh guns are kind of ever present in fact uh where i grew up in in east texas in a smaller town uh we we would bring our duck guns to school yeah guys would have hanging uh, up on the rack hanging on a gun rack and so if you're you know what everybody's trying to do on the left on the right everybody is they're trying to look at this thing now and say, okay, what are the different variables? What has changed? Why is it that if you look at schools today relative to when we grew up, which was not that long ago, what has changed to make it such that these young folks will come in and some of whom find that for them the answer is hurting somebody else in such a horrific way? And so with, with, with this particular program, we're just trying to look to see, is there not some way of identifying some of these kids, some of these kids, that in, in, in through their actions and maybe subtle actions on the front end are screaming for help from somebody? But what, as you sit down, Dr. Ted Mitchell here with us, other side of Texas, as you sit down with your counselors and, you know, they go after, you know, your 20,000 kids in, your 30,000, your four, and they talk about reoccurring themes, what, what in their estimation has changed? Because I know that became part of the conversation the other night too, was, you know, you know, back in my day, like it's easy for us all to go into Uncle Rico mode and say, sure. well, back whenever I was growing up, da, da. but that's fine. The And the upside of the Texas Constitution is every kid gets a fair and equitable education in Texas. The downside is every right. kid gets a fair and equitable education, no matter their mental health status. Right. So what what are some variables that you found that have changed well and i'll, I'll, I'll i'm speaking now i'll speak as a as a as a dad and as a physician but i won't speak on behalf of of the study that, that dr phillips is working with this but if you look at this and, and say so what what's different now with with young people today relative to when we were growing up one of the things that has been wonderful is the world wide web and the internet with that we quite literally Every child in this country has the, 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 the massed knowledge of the world quite literally at their fingertips. The downside to that is that children today are exposed to things on the Internet and with the way they communicate with one another in a way that we weren't, that we never were. And I don't know, I don't know that, that, that some children can process that fully uh, when they're not yet fully mature for things. And there's a reason why uh, we, we don't let children drive until they're a certain age. There's a reason why we don't allow children to go into R-rated movies till a certain age. There's a reason why we don't allow them to drink alcohol until a certain age. There's a reason for all those things. And it's because they're not emotionally mature and because the frontal lobe of their brain has not yet fully developed to make 
these adult decisions about things. So a lot of the, the, the decisions they make are emotionally based, not rationally based. And so they're exposed to things that a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old can look at and assess with a different perspective than they can. Yeah. And I think that's a contributor to this. So tell me, as we look at, as Abbott has said, he wants to look at implementing your program, Twitter, which, by the way, whenever I was talking with your assistant, she said, oh, you want to talk about Twitter? I was like, well, I not don't, really. don't really know. <laughs> I'm, I've not ever really seen, like, Ted Mitchell jump up on Twitter and, and like, get, like, 100,000 followers, right. maybe. But you know, she said, yeah, I said, yeah, I do want to talk about this Twitter program. But whenever he talks about implementing something like this across the state, what does that look like? Well, it will look it will look different from school district to school district for this reason. Not all school districts have the same resources, and we're currently working very closely uh, with Senator Charles Perry's office, with the governor's office, with a lot of the elected officials around the state to see exactly what this would look like. So, for example, uh, it would be different if you're dealing with a school district like DISD, Dallas Independent School District, that has tens and th tens of thousands of students relative to looking at Rawls ISD mm -hmm. here outside of Lubbock. Uh, so depending on the size of the school district, depending on their, their current resources that they have, uh, those are two of the big factors that make a big difference in how you would roll it out, number one, and number two, what the cost would be for that ISD. And so we're walking through all of those right now, all of those variables with the governor's staff to find out exactly what this would look like if we moved it. Now, I'll, I'll tell you one, one thing that very likely will be part of this is that we'll be the tip of the spear for helping to train some of the other health-related institutions on how you do this. Because it does make sense to use academic health centers. Uh, so if you go to Dallas, you'd use UT Southwestern. Mm -hmm. If you go to Fort Worth, University of North Texas Health Science Center. Mm -hmm. uh, UTMB, UT Houston, UT San Antonio. Use the places where they already have some of this infrastructure in place, the, uh, the content expertise, if no. you will. What roughly is the cost of this particular program, managing I'm going to say managing, but looking after 40000 Sure. What's, what's the cost of that well, annually? Our cost here, and, and please keep in mind that this is distinctly different than what the cost is going to be elsewhere because we looked at rural districts. Mm -hmm. But ours has been about $40,000 per district that we've done to continue to manage it. How many districts are in that 40000 We have 10. Okay. We have 10 school districts. Okay. And, uh, and these are using our counselors that we have on staff that we're using as part of this. Now, that number is going to change significantly up or down depending on what other districts you're looking at as you move toward the what, east. What goes significantly up? You're talking about urban? Yes. If you look at the urban areas, on the one hand, because of the size of the area, you'll need more FTEs. You'll need more full-time folks. And the demographics. Correct. Oh. The, the demographics, whether it's more urban, whether it's more rural, uh, whether you're in an area that has more kids with broken families, whether you're in a school district where you've got already available uh, mental health counselors. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a bunch of variables that go into it, and we're actually trying to work through those things with other folks in the state so that we can come up with a number. Okay, this is the last thing I want to ask you about here. I've been working on this piece, and we're, I don't know if you've ever thought about sitting down and writing about the vet school, and I don't want to get particularly oh into the vet school with you right now, but to sit down and to write about what's gone on since 1971 with the vet school in 800 words is a pretty big task. And I've submitted a couple of, uh, and then rescinded my submissions uh. on this. But that to say... 
There is an argument in Texas about pipelines with higher education that we can pipeline, we can build a campus and then we can pipeline down to another campus, not talking about anything in particular other than hullabaloo, connect, connect, but I will say this, that Part of what I'm writing about is that in the 1960s, here you are, Ted Mitchell, sitting in this studio talking about a program devised out of the Texas Tech Health Sciences Center that the governor is now touting is part of a solution to this problem. Right. As close to a solution as we can come to this insoluble problem. And in the 1960s, the University of Texas, I know you're an alum, but the University of Texas fought and fought and fought against a medical what they call at that time medical school right up here right and it you know the argument being well we can train law we can train doctors down here and then send them back up there they'll just magically like fairies just go back up there and just take to the place and that never worked in pipelines by and large and by and large i mean like 75 percent of the time fall on their face but here we are 2018 medical school now the Health Sciences Center, that is training more medical professionals than any other entity in the state in the wake of a, a coming doctoral, a doctor, I shouldn't say doctoral, doctor shortage in this state, in this country, and now your program is being touted. Right. And that's, if you look at the, the growth of the Health Sciences Center, we, we celebrate our 50th anniversary next year. 1969, the legislative session is when Preston Smith signed into to law the presence of the Health Science Center. And as you said, it was called the medical school, Texas Tech Medical School at the time. And the argument with the, the UT system was exactly that. Uh, we really don't need a medical school out in West Texas. If you give us enough resources here, uh, we'll grow them here in Dallas and Houston and Galveston, and we'll send them out that direction. Yeah. And Preston Smith didn't think that would work. And he argued against it. And, in fact, the same legislation that brought us into existence created UT Health Science Center Houston. Yeah. And so... But that was a deal that was brokered, too, to be fair. You better believe it. You guys want to go to Houston? We're getting a medical that's school. Exact, in that's yeah. exactly what he did. And, and, and the, the, the proof is in the pudding. So here we are 50 years later. And, as you said, we graduate more healthcare professionals than any other university in the state. We're very proud of that. If you look at the Lubbock County Medical Society, the Lubbock Crosby Garza County Medical Society, 40% of all of its members either went to medical school here or trained here. If you go down to Midland, Odessa, 20% of the county medical societies trained here. If you go up to Amarillo, where we have a campus, it's more than that that trained yep. in the county societies there. We grow our own. And in West Texas, uh, and I say this as an East Texan, in West Texas, we grow our own. That is the way we work this. Yeah. And I don't mean that to be a big promotion on the Hill Sciences Center. If you guys need to be uh, ridiculed, <laughs> maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't, depending on whether or not How you want to arm wrestle Ted Mitchell. <laughs> but here, here's, here's my one gripe with you. Yeah. And I'm willing to support the project. But that campus now, the Hill Sciences Center in Lubbock, is so enormous. When are you going to build an app? where I can log on and say, I'm here, and I want to get here, and I don't want to cross three interstitiaries to get there. <laughs> it's amazing that you say that. Part of our growth plan here is wayfinding. All right, Specifically good. for it. Because my friend Cliff Wilkes went to work at the Health Sciences Center, and I said, Cliff, uh, uh, he's worked there. He's come back. Right. But I said, you know, golly, I walk around that place. <laughs> he said, yeah, it's 
pretty much your first two weeks yeah. trying to figure out where you are and where you're headed. Well, it took me a couple of weeks to consistently <laughs> turn in the right parking lot. <laughs> hey, uh, good work to you and your crew, and uh, thank you for taking time to come on. I appreciate you guys having me. I was just 101 with Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse. We're all in his classroom now as he explains the basics of Texas government. Uh, and this just a help. I've gotten a lot of feedback about, well, I want to understand Texas politics better. This is the primer that we're trying to lay out. And so thankful that Dr. Roddinghouse would give us a time. Uh, all of these are found on our Apple podcast. You can be seen at uh, other side of Texas.com. First part, origins of the Texas legislature. We moved into governor, lieutenant governor, and the Senate in our third part, and then the House. In our final part here, we want to talk about the House versus the Senate and the Senate versus the House. Uh, tell me a little bit about the House and the Senate relations over time. Uh, we know that they're meeting every other year, that they're meeting for six months, uh, excuse me, 140 days every other year but have those chambers typically always been opposed to one another there's definitely always been friction some of the institutional divides that are set up because of the rules in each chamber as well as because of um, the constitution's um, organization of the bicameral system just naturally sets up what we would consider a cumbersome system right so the fact that each of the different chambers has got different electoral horizons um, and different constituencies uh, creates these different political goals. Um, in particular, um, like we mentioned in, in one of the prior um, uh, sessions, the, the Senate has a much bigger um, kind of body of individuals they have to represent. So there tends to be um, a kind of um, a, a broader uh, vision of um, how to uh, kind of go about governing Texas, where the House has a smaller um, kind of edge point and therefore can be kind of more narrow in terms of how they approach things. That's what makes the House much more difficult to govern because they're um, individualistic and there's so many of them, right? So it's difficult to be able to um, kind of, you know, herd that, um, uh, that, that body together. So the years um, where this, the House has been able to kind of organize that effectively have been years where the House has been um, better at and more rapid at passing legislation than the Senate has been. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other is that um, just the whole process itself is fairly cumbersome, right? You've got both chambers having to pass legislation basically at three different points, right? So each bill has to have what we call three readings. Um, and each reading is essentially the introduction um, uh, to a committee, passing by a committee, and then sort of passing um, the floor of each chamber. That takes a lot of work, and there's a lot of built-in friction and stasis in that period. So the difficulty of getting any legislation passed is uh, by itself uh, pretty significant, but doing so across two different chambers that have all these different political and institutional differences makes it even more difficult. So, Dr. Roddinghouse, the just to recap, the House, 150 members, the Senate, 31 members, and in which chamber is it easier to be individualistic? And give us a definition of individualistic as they govern. Yeah. Yeah, so for, for most of the way that the kind of upper chambers work, and this is actually true for the U.S. Senate too, um, typically the uh, an individual legislator is given much more leeway because the rules are typically set up to allow the Senate to 
what we call kind of cool the heat <laughs> that might come from the, legend, the, the, the lower chamber of the house. Um, uh, George Washington was famous for um, sort of explaining it in the following way. He said that of the U.S. House and Senate that essentially the Senate is like the teacup that we use to cool down the kind of hot tea that the House might otherwise pour. Um, the same is really true, at least institutionally, for the House and Senate in Texas. The, uh, the rules in the House are designed to allow for an individual to have a lot more say. So we had mentioned um, when we talked about the lieutenant governor and lieutenant governor's power, um, the need to be able to have three-fifths of the membership in the Senate uh, agree to be able to pursue and to be able to initiate debate on legislation. That in and of itself is a pretty tall order. Nothing like that in the House exists. Uh, the Speaker of the House has fairly wide range to be able to push legislation they prefer. So an individual um, is much more um, kind of powerful in the, you know, the, the Texas Senate in general than they are in the Texas House. Yeah. Uh. It's so easy. I want to get a historical perspective to get deep mm. roots on the issue, but it's so easy to jump into the cult, the current uh, situation. Um, give us a couple of points in history before we get in with mm. with with Lieutenant Governor in in parlance. People say mm -hmm. Governor Patrick, but with Lieutenant yes. Governor Patrick versus Joe Strauss. What are a couple of other historical situations of speaker versus lieutenant governor? Yeah. Um, you know, there have been moments where they have um, been at odds. It's often been a kind of political odds. Um, you know, in the 1970s, Price Daniel Jr., who was the son of Price Daniel, um, who was governor um, before that um, period, um, had um, kind of run afoul of some of the lieutenant governors. Um, he had claimed and, frankly, exclaimed that the House had been, quote, raped, pillaged, and ridiculed by the Texas Senate. Um, it's not that uh, dissimilar, frankly, to what we saw in the 2017 session, right? Harold Dutton um, admonished the chamber to open up the House doors, and then all of the House members would basically, you know, yell and scream and carry on that, like, the Senate hadn't <laughs> passed their bills. Um, it was a fairly dramatic moment. So this is actually a long history. Um, uh, and so speakers have for a long time, you know, blamed lieutenant governors for the slowness of the process. Lieutenant governors have blamed the House for the slowness of their process. So um, it is a, a, an ongoing conflict that um, hasn't, you know, really resolved itself and probably never will, given the way that the system is set up. Um, we shouldn't forget that the process designed to not pass legislation rather than to pass legislation. So um, we often look at the U.S. Congress in the same way and say, well, why are we you know, paying them all this money and we spend all the time electing them and they don't do anything, they don't pass anything? Well, the process is really designed to minimize that to happen. So um, in the Texas legislature is even more true where getting something stopped is easier than getting something started. So that's part of that kind of super majoritarian aspect of the way that the, the process works and the balance of the different um, powers that are um, part of this. Um, so there's been a long history of the contentious relationship between the House and Senate. Um, in fact, part of the early um, uh, kind of differences of political opinion were around Sam Houston and his approach. I pulled two that were from the early Congresses. This is from the Congress of the Republic. Um, in one case, um, uh, there's a question about whether or not and how to fund militia troops. This is in the third Congress of the Republic. Um, the mm. House pushed a bill to appropriate uh, about $20,000 in script. Um, the Senate objected because they said basically issuing more script was worthless. Um, we talked about this early on. The 
um, Republic had a terrible debt problem, and they were issuing script, which was basically worthless. Um, I like to tell people that, like, part of the reason that uh, the University of Texas has that burnt orange color as their um, as their part of their school colors is that the script from the early Republic was that burnt orange color. So, in fact, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a barb against the you know UT uh, and, and company, but um, it's a kind of worthless script that was being issued. And so that interaction created um, a kind of, I think, real hallmark for how they deal with each other. Another was um, in the Fourth Congress. This is um, uh, also um, related to Sam Houston. And Sam Houston's forces in the House um, introduced a bill basically to sell lands that were formerly occupied by the Cherokee. Now, what this bill did was basically acknowledge that the land did belong to the Cherokee. Well, this didn't sit well with many people who objected to Houston's approach to this, right? He was much more kind of friendly towards, you know, former um, and even then current Native Americans. Um, This was a kind of rebuke to President Lamar, who was president at the time. Um, so one of the senators suggested that, um, in quote, I do not wish senators to bow down like groveling curs to party spirit, <laughs> uh, acknowledging that this sort of rift had existed. Um, the Senate approved alternative wording, but then basically balked when the House added $45,000 to conduct a survey, which even at the time was a lot of money. So um, the bill was then re issued to committees where it died. So there has been a long history of House Senate um, kind of um, interactions and friction, but it's really designed to do exactly that. So, Dr. Roddinghouse, you've got me thinking, and I'm not prepared because I've not memorized chapter and verse. Robert Caro's, I believe his Master of the Senate, might have been the second Mm. one. The U.S. Senate is the place where the walls stand tall, where cultural tides come with great momentum only to be stopped uh, at the Senate walls. Uh, Senate bodies, whether that be federal or state, are typically meant to uh, stop and to cool, as you said, to cool the cup. Mm -hmm. That seems not to be the case today. Uh, with the te- yeah. It seems to me the Texas Senate will take up any cultural issue at any time. Like, you got it, bring it, let's talk about it. Uh, was not always the case. Uh, is this a product of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, or was can we trace this back through Dewhurst into former Lieutenant Governor Rick Perry? Mm-hmm. I definitely think that the, the kind of political overture um, could be traced back at least to the 1990s. So I would say, yeah, back as far as Rick Perry when he was um, lieutenant governor and then and then governor was really when you started to see the bodies begin to push uh, for a an electorally connected legislative outcome, if that makes sense. Hmm. Now, everything's about politics, right? You can't get away from that. But there's a sense that you could unify what happened in the chamber with what was happening outside the chamber. Texas is traditionally a weak party state. In political science, we consider weak party states to be those that don't have sufficient kind of party discipline within the chamber. Um, This is changing to some degree. Um, Part of the reason it was called that and labeled that was because there was so much heterogeneity in the parties, right? The Democratic Party was so split with 
the Republicans, with the conservatives and with the more liberals and moderates, that Mm -hmm. it was unable to maintain a kind of party discipline. Once the 1980s, 1990s come around, you begin to see the sorting almost complete. So party discipline becomes much more doable for parties. So then you could have a lieutenant governor and you could have a speaker who could then say, okay, now I can link my party platform to my legislative agenda. That's something before that that was really tough. Republicans were like so few in number that, you know, they they weren't even talked about for a long time. I've got a great um, book from the 1950s. It's a government book from the 1950s on Texas government, and they don't even talk about the Republicans. (laughs) They were an afterthought in so many ways, and it's funny to think that now, but um, there really weren't that many Republicans around. It wasn't until 1950 that the first Republican was elected to uh, the U.S. Congress, and so it is a really rare, it was a really rare event. Um, Actually, um, there's a great story um, that um, that was told in Robert, uh, John Meacham's book about George H.W. Bush. He said uh, he related a story that um, when he, um, George H.W. Bush and his wife Barbara were um, precinct chairs in uh, Midland, they were running an election for a particular precinct, and um, literally nobody else voted except for them. And he said they said that one other person stumbled in <laughs> drunk <laughs> and was not sure where they were. So, uh, being a Republican in Texas for a long time was um, a pretty lonely thing. Um, but I digress. Um, but so, really, yeah, you didn't have until 1980s, 1990s a period where the parties were unified enough you could make those kinds of clear legislative claims um, to what the party was going to do outside. Hmm. So, Again, a, a theme. We're in the fifth part, but I've listened to you talk now for a good deal of time, and a theme that you've continued to hit is this desired party outcome, this desired uh, political outcome. And let's go to, now I'm going to stop trying to get myself to 2018, but let's go to 2018 now. Uh, Patrick, to me, the lieutenant governor, his aim seems to constantly be a political outcome. Um, and I wonder how that is going to set up. Of course, the House is in an open, there's an open race for the Speaker. I think, you know, based upon our last session, I think that you're right. I think that there will be a Speaker. I think that it'll be of a for price mode out of Amarillo. I think it'll be a Drew Darby mode out of San Angelo. Um, A couple other people come to mind, uh, but how is that going to shape Texas going forward? Uh, A desired party outcome versus a desired uh, need in the House, a desired party outcome on the Senate side versus a desired let's let the House vote its conscience on the lower chamber side. Yeah. I think that the interaction between whoever is speaker and the lieutenant governor is going to be key. Um, that's not to say that the lieutenant governor should have any say because this is what the House does, but it's definitely the case that there has to be some synergy. Um, it began to be the case um, around about the 1950s where each of the kind of what they call the big three um, now, that's the speaker and the governor and um, the lieutenant governor would get together, um, oftentimes with the attorney general, um, to be able to talk through kind of strategy, like what are we going to do this session? And so that is essential to be able to understand kind of where the members are and where things are going to go. Um, I do suspect that you're going to find, again, the House being the drag um, on the flotilla. I don't see a way around it, given the way that 
that the system is structured, um, and also given the way that Dan Patrick wants to accelerate the speed of passage of this legislation. I mean, one of the big things we saw at the end of um, the, the 85th and the beginning of the special session was that, you know, Dan Patrick was claiming credit and was crowing about having passed the bills faster than the House. So I just think, I mean, there's no way around that in some ways because um, this institutional sort of design is that way on purpose. But it's also the case that um, politically, of course, you know, Dan Patrick wants to align himself with um, the more conservative elements of of, uh, of, Go- of Governor Abbott's uh, call, whatever that may be. So it's definitely the case that um, you're going to find that friction continue no matter who gets to be elected. Um, one question is whether or not that matters. Um, and, and one of the things that I did was to look at the kind of ideological um, split by chamber uh, since about the 1990s. And we've mm. seen in Texas, like you said, a real um, kind of emergence of a conservative wing of the party, which has pulled the Republicans into a more conservative direction. And there's also, of course, in the other direction, the Democrats are pulling their, um, their coalition into a more liberal direction. So the question is what effect that has on the number of items passed or the ratio of items passed, in this case, of those brought up. Um, and so I just did a kind of quick scatter plot. Um, my colleague here at the University of Houston, Boris Shore, has mapped the ideological um, individual um, pinpoint for in legislators in all legislation, in all legislators um, in all states um, since 2000. And so using his data, what I did is to basically do a scatter plot of like, you know, pass ratio um, on one axis and chamber polarization on the other. And not surprisingly, the more polarized the process, the less likely it is that things are going to get done. So what we're likely to look at here is just a kind of stasis and very little legislation will get passed. This, again, is part of the system. It's the way it's designed. It also is politically resonant with what many Republicans want, which is small government through nothing happening, right? Um, But when you consider in the context of some bills that need to be passed and problems that have to be addressed, it could be problematic. So there are some serious um, implications to the divide between the House and the Senate. Wow. Stasis. You threw out, I, I lost track of everything, all, all the big words you just used there. But I mean, that, that it really is. It's fascinating to see how all that stuff comes to bear and yep. uh, that it's coming to bear right now. Uh, there are several big things that need to be addressed. And you know, the Dallas Morning News wrote a, a big series. We're broadcasting this in the week of, uh, I think this is about June 11th. We've pre-recorded this, but uh, about Medicaid and Medicaid third parties that are hired out and, and what happens there. It's certainly going to be a, a ruffle. It's going to become a ruckus, I should say, in the le- next legislature and also uh We've got school finance and these things, but you think, based upon your work, that the more ideological it's been, the less pragmatic policy will be addressed. Yeah, and this is differences between the House and the Senate, too. So, I mean, you know, they're both run by Republicans, so you've got unified government in that way. And in theory, the government would be supportive of much of what the Republicans end up passing in both chambers. But 
we've got this divide in the party that doesn't allow for there to be a kind of smooth um, uh, outcome for, uh, for, for the relationship. Um, and I would say, honestly, too, it's, it's ironic that, in fact, one of the things that Paul Burka, who is a longtime writer for the um, Texas Monthly, uh, suggested was a major problem of the rise of the conflict in Texas um, ideologically was that the power of the governor really expanded. So I think Perry was one of the big reasons why the um, governor expanded um, their authority. Um, and they in some ways dominated the legislature. So you saw the kind of um, kind of conflict being um, led by this kind of strong leadership in both uh, in, in really one party then, and then the other party kind of responded. So this kind of polarization is not likely to go away. Um, I will say that one thing that is an interesting kind of byproduct of an architectural outcome that you don't think about, uh, that we don't typically think about as an explanation for why polarization exists, is that in the same article, Paul Burka suggested that the capital expansion, which uh, finalizes in 1993, I think, but was begun like, you know, before that, uh, where um, the capital, you know, now extends underground, like back behind mm-hmm. underground, uh, the capital. Um, it's it's beautiful and you know really um, you know stunning views and from from many of the perspectives there. But what it did was that it essentially um, pulled a lot of the member offices into that annex, and now they don't see each other as much. So their interactions are on social media or through regular media, media or on the house floor where they yell at each other. <laughs> so the difficulty in getting people to just sort of sit and talk and you know. Uh, break bread, you know, share a beer or whatever, um, those things are less than they used to be. So it's creating, uh, again, this kind of political rift that's hard to heal. Hmm. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions, but in the couple of minutes we have remaining here, I think a couple of parting thoughts from you would be more appropriate. So for Mm -hmm. people trying to understand the House versus the Senate and, well, hold on. Hold on, hold on. I am going to ask you one question. Yeah. If you're right, if the research is right, and uh, the next Speaker of the House is more of a moderated conservative Republican who wants to serve the best of that 150-member body, it seems to me that all the talking points on Joe Strauss right now by and large, like eight out of 10 of the talking points on Joe Strauss by more ideologically bent people in and outside of the legislature, we'll just scrub Joe Strauss's name out and then write in the new speaker's name and go forward. Uh, yeah. That that seems to me to be the line that we're on. Is that a correct assumption? I think that that's generally correct. Um, for those speakers who have put for lack of a better way of putting it, ideology or politics ahead of the institution, they have not had a very long-term speaker. Um, And I think in the current climate, you're exactly right, that the differences and the divide within the Republican Party make it difficult to govern it, period. Finding the right person will be critical. Um, I think there are lots of good options. I mean, you you named a couple um, that could do the job. And 
to be honest, in history, we've seen all kinds of moments where, like somebody who was elected speaker who, you know, nobody really looked at as somebody who was going to be a great unifier of a party or somebody who was going to make a tremendous institutional difference. So we don't know the person. And to be honest, it may be the case that we, you know, somebody is elected that we never really thought would be elected. So um, there's a long history of that in the state. Um, but generally speaking, if, if, if a speaker has put um, – if a speaker has put politics above institutional development or institutional strength in the House or has put politics or ideology above the will of the House, they have tended to not survive in office as long. That's not to say that it won't be political outcomes and that there won't be friction ideologically because there definitely will be. That's the way the system is set up. But um, it is to say that, um, that, that it, when one goes too far with that, then speakers tend to suffer. Branding Roddinghouse, I wish we could go on and on. I'm sure that you could keep going for another 10 hours, but uh, we got to cut it. out and make some advertising money. Uh, gotcha, here. gotcha. Uh, so what's your next book you're working on here? So I'm um, I'm doing the second edition of the Texas government book, Inside Texas Politics, so um, updating with all of the fun things that have happened since uh, the last uh, issue. Um, yeah, 2015 was the last one, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot's changed, and so it's uh, a definitely um, an interesting thing to kind of see evolve oh, over oh, the years. Okay, so um, I'm not done with the interview. Let me ask you this. Yeah. yeah. Since Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, introduced and that we did away with the two-thirds which meant that you rough, you had to have what roughly 20 senators which means mm -hmm. you had to have bipartisan support for a bill to come to the floor now it's 19 which is yep. important because the chamber right now is at 20 republicans uh now yes. now you've got a three-fifths rule essentially they used to walk around with blue cards in order to get legislation to the floor now it's essentially run by patrick uh where you don't see those cards any longer how much of your update of inside texas politics from 2015 to 2018 will be doing away with the cards uh, let me ask a better mm -hmm. way that seems to be a pretty monumental shift in legislature. How much of your update will have to do with how the Senate has shifted since doing away with the two thirds rule? Yeah, a, a couple of different ways. I mean, number one, it's definitely the case that the politics and the institutional rules have advantaged the lieutenant governor, specifically this lieutenant governor. So, you know, I, I don't know how long, you know, Patrick will be in office, but any lieutenant governor who's a Republican who comes after him with the same setup is going to have the same kinds of rules and the same kinds of abilities. So a lot of the changes that we've seen have really been, like I said, you know, Lieutenant Governor Patrick um, solidifying power as quickly and perhaps as, um, as uniformly as we've seen any lieutenant governor in history. So that's definitely a, a big factor. The other factor is just the, the ideological position of the legislation that is now produced by the Senate is more conservative than it was before the rule changed. Um, and so not surprisingly, right, you've got um, more 
uh, you, you have to have you have to have fewer people agree, and those people tend to be more politically alike than what was happening before the rule was changed and before Lieutenant Governor Patrick was you know putting his fairly conservative stamp on the on the agenda. So the, the those are the two biggest things. The um, number one is just the politics and the rules have now aligned to make the lieutenant governor as powerful, perhaps more powerful than the governor. Uh, and the other is that the tenor and ideological position of legislation is becoming much more conservative with these rule changes. So, But I will note one caveat, okay. and that is that lieutenant governor is only as powerful as the Senate allows. It's kind of like where the House writes its own rules. They could strip the speaker of some powers. Um, I have a friend um, who is a, a former, um, uh, who formerly worked uh, for the lieutenant governor, not this lieutenant governor, um, uh, but for, worked for the lieutenant governor, um, and he had what he called the rule of 16 angry senators, and that is don't anger 16 senators at once because a majority of the members can amend the rules to change the structure and power of the lieutenant governor's uh, ability to be able to do all kinds of things like, um, you know, assign committees or uh, to ferret legislation uh, into different committees. So uh, there are restrictions, there are rules that if lieutenant governor or speaker, for that matter, gets out of hand uh, or violates some um, some kind of uh, um, an unwritten or written rule, that they can kind of strip that person of specific powers. Do you find... Here I said that we're going to end this interview, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> I find a lot. I appreciate you saying that. I find a lot of prop in the nomenclature now. Like I'm yeah. a West Texan. I'm, my grand, my great grandmother told me stories about how fascinated they were when Santa Claus brought them onions and oranges in their stockings. Like I get it. Okay, I get the survival pioneer mentality of Texas, but it really bothers me whenever I look at news stories now, now that we've talked about the House and Senate and the, how it's played out over time and, and all this party-minded endgame. I just, I read stories and even a couple of times listening to you, like what I hear now is conservative is not what I was grown up with. That's not what I grew up with, and I'm 39, so it's not like I'm saying this and I'm 69. Um, but I don't, at what point, and this is a little off point from the interview itself, but just trying to classify these tr traditional labels of liberal and conservative, these initiatives, if conservative means to conserve, it seems like the institutions that we need to look after that have existed all you know for the better part of two centuries in texas well 150 years in texas <clears throat> we are not conserving those i mean do yeah. we need to like have a forum for journalists to attend led by dr brandon roddinghouse to say <laughs> okay here's what conservative means here's what liberal means here's what moderate means mm-hmm yeah, it's interesting. Um, actually, there's a great book. Um, it's called Cowboy Conservatism. It's by um, a history professor up in your neck of the woods, Sean Cunningham. Um, the argument in the book basically says that, I'll, I'll summarize, and that is that Texas didn't change, but perceptions of the parties in Texas changed. Uh, and what he means by that um, is that basically the Democrats in the 1970s um, had be then had sort of shifted to become a party that looked like more liberal, that was um, you know willing to you know bus you know students across um, counties. It was willing to um, kind of allow for you know draft dodgers to you know be uh, to 
have amnesty, stuff like that. Um, um, increasingly, people began to associate conservatism with the Republican Party, and that meant what it used to mean for the Democratic Party, which was low taxes, um, kind of modest spending, um, and generally kind of a you know conservative mindset. Um, so that kind of explains in some ways the change in terms of party labels over time. But um, Texas has always been a place, and the parties have always been a place where the there has been much debate inside each office and each um, party about kind of what these labels mean and what we should do about them, right? And that's um, become, um, I think, uh, a much less likely to happen now, right, where the parties are kind of fixed in terms of their um, their approaches. And, you know, a lot of this gets adjudicated, number one, at the conventions that we're like we're going to have here pretty soon, um, and number two in elections, and number three in the legislative session. So, um, but it is a difficult um, kind of thing to be able to have such a big tent when you've got so many different kinds of interests. For a long time, the Democratic Party had that, but um, now um, uh, they're they're sort of fairly narrow, as are the Republicans. Um, I'll say one last thing, and that is um, there's a great couple of stories where well, when Texas needed money the most, the state provided. Um, so my way I think about it is like um, one way of thinking about it is you know, who needs taxes when Texas is blessed? Two examples. One is that in 1950 or 1850, rather, um, you had um, a kind of serious debt problem. And Texas, as you know, used to have more than just land beyond the panhandle, right? Like the boundaries basically had it going into New Mexico and to parts of Utah. Um, so basically the compromise of 1850 allowed for Texas to get paid about $10 million. Texas used that money then to basically create a school system and to um, build public buildings. Um, and so they were kind of saved from themselves through this fortune. Uh, the other, and this is more recent, and this is in October of 1929, as you know, the stock market crashes. Well, 10 months later, Dad Joyner struck strikes the biggest oil reserve in history that was under Kilgore. In fact, it's still one of the biggest to date. So the state has always had this kind of, I don't know if you call it luck <laughs> or if it's providence, but it's definitely um, this kind of sense that, um, you know, we don't need to have this kind of investment in things. We can just kind of count on things to go well for us. Uh, and that has, to some degree, kind of governed a lot of what public policy happens in the state. Mm. Well, there it is, your five parts. If you're interested in Texas politics or no friends who might be interested, we've laid out this five-part series. So much uh, so much to do with the work of Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse there at the University of Houston. And uh, Dr. Roddinghouse, thank you for taking time to do this series here on Other Side of Texas, bud. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. A few more thank yous for this week of pre-recorded programming. Scott Braddock and Ross Ramsey, as always, but especially this week, giving us some personal backgrounds. You can go to our Apple podcast and hear those if you've missed them. Also, a big thanks to Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, University of Houston, with our five-part series there on the Texas legislature and a big thank you. Thank you for listening. I look forward to being back in the studios where Buddy Holly became famous next week. We finally got that text message machine up and going. 806-745-5800. If you're listening live on AM 580 Lubbock or other side of Texas.com. So until then, Have a great weekend. We'll see you right back here on the other side next week.